Liz's tail swished back and forth as she thought this through. Jean Lewis is giving up the case? He will therefore not be representing Johnson and Brown at the pending hearing? Sadly, not, Nigel answered with a frown. Au contraire, Liz answered as she got up and walked to the entrance of the tavern. They shall not be alone. They will have a voice in the court, if I have my two cents worth to say about it. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. As always, you can download your very own copy of The Voice of Revolution and the Key on audiobook by going to audible.com. And brand new, hot off the press, as it were, our next audiobook and the next story in the Epic Order of the Seven Saga by Jenny L. Cody is now available for audiobook download as well. It's the Declaration, the Sword, and the Spy. Download your own copy of this brand new audiobook by Jenny L. Cody and voiced by me, Denny Brownlee, by logging on to audible.com and look for The Declaration, The Sword, and The Spy. And Jenny and I thank you. Now, time for today's episode, and we'll hear Chapter 40 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled Two Pennies for Your Thoughts. So let me just get started by introducing our hosts. First, the Scottish doggy who once paid a whole 25 cents to watch a football game, but when it was over, he said he wanted his quarterback. Oh, oh, yeah. oh Lad, that were bad. Oh, you mean the joke? No, the game. Both teams stunk. That's why I wanted me quarterback. Uh-huh. Yes, please welcome Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce. Uh, and next, our furry French feminine feline, who is always willing to give you her two cents. Oui, because it is worth so much more. <laughs> I am a bargain, no? <laughs> welcome Lisette Le Bargain Briand. And finally, a guy small enough to turn on a dime, but too small to pick up that dime, Nigel P. Monaco. I say, these uh, jokes aren't worth a dime either. <laughs> I don't know. I think they'd be a nice uh, change. <coughs> Get it? A nice change. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well done, old boy. Leshing. Uh, that's cha-ching. Not where I come from. It is leshing. Okay, fine. Uh, anyway... A little later, we'll check into Jenny's corner and uh, throw her a curve. Plus, Nigel will bring us some news nuggets. And, uh, Nigel, what's your topic today? Well, quite simply put, in light of our focus on today's chapter with the Two Penny Act, I will be expounding upon the relative value of our current monetary structure versus that of the 18th century in terms of the British pound. Ah, he don't like the sound of that, Mosey. What is wrong, mon ami? Why do you not like the sound of that? Well, for one, I didn't understand a word of it. But from what I gathered, Mosey, you be talking about the British pound. No, I never been to a British pound, but I've been to one here in the States, and it were full of fleas, and it smelled. I say, it's not a dog pound, old boy. The British pound is their standard unit of currency. We oui, they measure their money in pounds. Oh, that don't make sense. <laughs> Nor does it make dollars. <laughs> I say, <laughs> okay, why doesn't it make sense, Max? Because a handful of coins weigh a whole lot more than a $10 bill, but they don't amount to as much. No, Max, uh, what it means... So, if you're British, do you have to weigh your money to find out how much you got? I say, Chelsea, old boy, I got 50 pounds of money. 
I say, Reginald, don't that make it hard to climb the stairs, then? Max, it is not that kind of pound, either. Well, then, this be the only kind of pound left. Max, please stop pounding on the table. Indeed, old boy, you are completely missing the point. It's just a name. Americans call their money dollars, and the British call theirs pounds. Announcer lad, does that make any sense to you? Nope, doesn't make any dollars either. <laughs> we already did that joke, monsieur. Uh, sorry, uh, but we have bigger problems these days. Uh, do you realize that now it costs two and a half cents to make a penny, and more than a dime to make a nickel? Uh-oh. I uh, don't suppose there's any way to keep you from elaborating on that, is there, old chap? No. See, the copper in a penny is now worth more than a penny. Plus the cost to manufacture the penny, pennies are now produced at about, no oh, two per nickel. Oh, boys, this is not good. Indeed, he's still going. Unfortunately, that nickel now takes a dime and a penny to produce. About a nickel in manufacturing, plus the nickel alone in the nickel is worth about a nickel and a penny. Well, as fascinating as this is... Well, wait, there's more. I say, oh, goody. At these costs, we may not even see pennies in our future. Not even J.C. pennies? Uh, perhaps I should call them J.C. nickels and dimes, what? <laughs> hey, I'm serious. Uh, of course you are. I say, if the old boy is right, do you realize that if you ask, hey, a penny for your thoughts, you'll be lucky to get a meaningful phrase? Aye, <laughs> <laughs> and if you decide to give me your two cents worth... It's going to cost me a nickel. Which I wouldn't give you a thin dime for, because it costs a dime and a penny to make that nickel. <laughs> so, the way things are going, we'll soon all be penniless. That's right, because our federal government will stop making sense. Nope. Not going there, lad. I'm not touching that one, monsieur. I say, uh, perhaps we should start today's chapter one. We, uh, that would be a nice, uh, change. change. Chapter 40. Two pennies for your thoughts. Hanover Tavern, November 5th, 1763. Ms. P. yawned wide and rigorously shook her black mane. Well, I for one am glad to stay put today. Patrick has kept me running across six counties for three years, lawyering in the courts and hunting all along the way. Sometimes we'll ride a hundred miles so Patrick can attend to a case. That young man simply will not stop for anything. You mean to tell me the lad hunts on his way to court? Max asked with a big grin. Miss P gave an exaggerated nod. I've seen him walk right into court carrying his gun and still dressed in his grimy hunting clothes, leaving his fresh prize draped over my back until he could clean it for supper. But he is always ready to get right up and speak for his clients, not missing a beat. Still, I think he could look more presentable in the courtroom. That's a wee bit surprising, but hunting do sound like something the lad might do, Max said. He still loves his gun. You're getting this straight from the horse's mouth, so of course it's true. The black horse replied with a snort. Max and Liz were sitting in the barn behind Hanover Tavern, getting caught up with Ms. P and her travels with Patrick Henry. Nigel was across the street in Hanover Courthouse, there to see and report back on the Parsons case filed by Reverend James Morey. Patrick made sure to be home that day in order to sit in on the case. His friend, John Lewis, was defending the two Louisa Vestry Parish collectors, 
Thomas Johnson, and Tarleton Brown, whom Maury was suing for back pay from the controversial Two-Penny Act. Colonel John Henry was the presiding judge for the case, which would no doubt be a sentinel event here in Hanover County. I know you are tired, mon ami, Liz told Miss P. Patrick has handled 1,185 cases over the past three years, so of course this pace has been very difficult, no? But I am so very glad you are his horse. He never could have done this work without you. Well, I'm sweet on Patrick, so I'm glad to carry him where he needs to go, Miss P. answered with a grin. Besides, Patrick has another baby to feed since little William was born, so he has to do double duty with providing for his family. That's an awful lot of cases, Liz, Max exclaimed. He must be an important lawyer, I know. We, oui, but his cases have all been quite small, Liz answered. Patrick has never had to prepare for an important case with many people present. Certainly nothing like what is happening across the street today. But I know it is time for him to do so. I am convinced that the next part of the fiddle's riddle has to do with Patrick using his voice across the street in Hanover Courthouse, but I do not yet know when or how. Something tells me it has to do with this two-penny act business. No one is as passionate or can understand this case better than Mon Henry. Nigel entered the barn, shaking his fist and talking a mile a minute. A defeat, a resounding defeat for the poor souls in that malicious Maury's parish. Blast it all, for the first time the crown has squashed the people of Virginia, and John Henry, of all people, was the one who allowed it to happen. Liz furrowed her brow and placed her paw on Nigel's small frame. Steady, Nigel, come down and please tell us what happened. I'm terribly sorry for my outburst, my dear, but this case is quite upsetting. Nigel took a deep breath and preened his whiskers to regain his composure. Right. King's attorney, Peter Lyons, represented Reverend Murray, and John Lewis defended Johnson and Brown against the claim that they must collect additional money from the parishioners to give Murray his fair back pay. Lewis argued that his clients had paid Maury all that was due him under the Two-Penny Act. Lyons objected and argued that the act was void from the beginning, like the Parsons are arguing in other cases. The little mouse put a paw to his forehead and shook his head. John Henry and the justices then did the unthinkable. They upheld Lyons' argument. John Henry is therefore the first judge in Virginia to declare the Two-Penny Act void from inception. Ergo, Maury will now be able to get his precious extra money. Liz put her paw to her mouth. This is shocking. I cannot believe it, Nigel. What is to happen next? Judge Henry ordered a jury hearing for December 1st to determine how much money Maury will receive. Nigel explained. John Lewis is withdrawing from the case, as it is hopeless to argue any further defence. This means not only has Maury won his case, but all the other parsons out there will have a precedent to win their cases. This will be intolerable for the people of Virginia. 
Those parcels are now armed to the teeth with reason to dip their hands in the pockets of their struggling parishioners, Miss P. whinnied. Maybe Patrick should have been the laddie's lawyer today, Max suggested with a scowl. Indeed, old boy. By the way Patrick was frowning and clenching his jaw during the case, I believe he was perhaps angrier than anyone else there, Nigel replied. He walked with John Lewis back here to the tavern, and they're inside talking about the case now. Liz's tail swished back and forth as she thought this through. Did you say that John Lewis is giving up the case? He will therefore not be representing Johnson and Brown at the pending hearing? Sadly not, Nigel answered with a frown. Johnson and Brown must go it alone and simply abide by what the jury decides in damages for Maury in December. Au contraire, Liz answered as she got up and walked to the entrance of the tavern. They shall not be alone. They will have a voice in the court, if I have my two cents worth to say about it. Patrick Henry and John Lewis sat together in a high-backed, darkened corner booth of Hanover Tavern, oblivious to the clamor of other tavern patrons who were clinking mugs of ale, calling for their server, or talking loudly about the news of the day. Patrick leaned his elbows on the table and kept his firm gaze fixed on John, who went round and round on how things went in court. Liz jumped up on the bench next to Patrick, but he ignored her. She was eye-level with the table, and peered over to notice a few pennies of change sitting there next to John's pewter mug. "'Pat, I'm telling you, your father has just changed everything with his ruling. The other pending Parsons cases are either stalled in the general court, waiting to see what happens in our lower courts, or they have been ruled in favor of the parishes,' John explained. "'Once the jury decides and awards the amount due to Maury, there will be nothing to stop every other parson from filing suit and getting their just rewards. I understand, and I am just as upset as you, John, but why won't you stay with Johnson and Brown to see it through to the next step? Patrick asked. Johnson is a good man. I represented him for two small cases earlier this year, and think highly of him and his family. If I didn't have any influence in today's court ruling, I most certainly will have none for the damages hearing, John said, sitting back in his seat with a sigh. Parsons will no doubt come from all over the colony to be there for that ruling, and the weight of their presence will smother any hope for whoever tries to prevent a generous award. Did you see your Uncle Patrick Henry sitting there staring smugly at your father during court? I know your father is a staunch Anglican and sympathizes on a personal level with this case. I just don't believe there is anything more I can do for Johnson and Brown. Liz stood on her hind legs and reached her paw over to the coins. She slowly pulled two pennies over to the edge until they fell under the bench next to Patrick. Patrick mindlessly picked up the coins and put them back on the table. He noticed they were two pennies. He slid the coins back over to John and said, May I put in my two pennies worth? We are discussing the two-penny act, John replied coyly. Go ahead. Patrick smiled and leaned in again, 
the glow from the lantern on the table illuminating the side of his face. I think you are wrong, John. Maury chose to file suit in Hanover County rather than in his home county of Louisa. Why? I think he was trying to get away from the influences of Louisa County, where Johnson has local power and popularity, and is repeatedly elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses. Since a tiny portion of his parish resides in Hanover County, Maury was entitled to have his court day here, and I think he knew my father would feel sympathy for and pressure from my uncle to get the court to rule in his favor. But I think he underestimated something far more powerful for the next hearing. John leaned in close over the table. I'm listening. Maury underestimated the people of Hanover, who will serve on that jury, Patrick replied with a feisty grin. It is no secret that Hanover is full of dissenters, and the new light Presbyterians Maury and the other Anglican parsons looked down upon. I think Maury believes he and the other parsons can hold sway over any jury with the backing of the king and now the backing of the court. But if the people truly understand what is at stake in this case and how their freedoms have been trampled on by the church and the state, they will be inclined to render harsh judgment in Maury's case. Never underestimate the power of the people when their liberties are threatened. John nodded slowly, and he furrowed his brow. I see your point, but the court has already decided the law in this case, Pat. Nothing more can be done about it. The only judgment left to make is for the jury to agree or not agree with the simple math that King's attorney Peter Lyons will present. The difference between what Maury was paid and what he should have been paid. Maury was paid 133 pounds under the Two-Penny Act, but since that law is no longer considered valid, he should have been paid 400 pounds. Technically, that means Maury should now be paid the difference of 267 pounds. That's the only thing the jury must decide. I think it will be an open and shut case. Patrick frowned and let go an exasperated sigh. I wish you would reconsider. Technically, nothing is ever completely open and shut. All you need is a sliver of a wedge to open the case up to other possible outcomes. C'est vrai, Liz meowed. She once again rose to her feet and this time swatted the coins so they went flying off the table, barely missing Nigel, who had been sitting beneath the table to hear their conversation. Liz, Patrick scolded her. He shooed her off the bench and reached down to the floor to pick up the two pennies. He placed them up on the table and slid them back over to John. Forgive my cat. Uh, sometimes she can be a bit too determined. John smiled and put his fingers on the two pennies. Sometimes that's just the kind of sliver of a wedge a case needs, being a bit too determined. Just like you were when I sent you riding off to Williamsburg with your certificate to get your law license after only studying for three months. And look what you've been able to accomplish ever since. Very well, Patrick. I have reconsidered. He slid the coins back across the table to Patrick. Here is my two pennies worth. I'm turning the Parsons case over to you. You can defend Johnson and Brown's interests against Maury. 
Patrick's eyes widened, and he put his hand over his chest. Me? No, no, no. They need someone with more experience. I've never spoken in front of a large courtroom or for a case of such importance, and I would only have three weeks to prepare. Besides, I would have to make the case before my father and my uncle. John gave him an impish grin. You only studied three months for your law degree. Surely three weeks is enough time to prepare for one case. Besides, since you've represented Johnson before, you already know each other, so he will feel comfortable with you. You can do this, Pat. I know it. Yes, your father and uncle will be on one side of the case, but you and the people will be on the other. He leaned in close, and, as you said yourself, never underestimate the power of the people when their liberties are threatened. Patrick picked up the two pennies and gripped them in his hand. He took in a deep breath and let it go. This was not my intention in talking with you today. But it was mine, Liz thought on the floor. The door to the tavern opened, and John saw Johnson and Brown step inside. He held up his hand and waved the men over. Here are your clients now. Very well, Patrick replied, standing up to greet the men. Liz walked over to Nigel, and the little mouse preened his whiskers happily. <laughs> My dear, it was brilliant of you to inspire them with your two cents worth, although it was purely a subliminal suggestion. Liz giggled. <laughs> Merci, mon ami. I believe my Henry will be the perfect voice in the court, not just for Johnson and Brown, but for all Virginians. Uh, now for the difficult part. She looked back at Patrick, already engaged in a lively discussion with the men. To prepare him to argue against the person's cause. Liz and Nigel sat on Patrick's desk, scattered with law books, case documents, and tobacco receipt records. Patrick had read late into the night and fell asleep resting his head on his desk for a moment. He had been rereading a 1760 pamphlet by Virginia Burgess Richard Bland, primary author of the Two Penny Act. Entitled A Letter to the Clergy of Virginia, Bland argued that in times of emergency, the safety of the people is the supreme law, and it was the right of the people to take whatever steps necessary for their welfare in times of crisis, despite the views of the king. This was the higher law, and was a fundamental right of British subjects, as set forth in the English Constitution. A copy of John Locke's book on civil government lay open next to Patrick. Nigel adjusted his spectacles and peered over to read what Patrick had marked. See here, Nigel whispered so as not to wake him. Locke is brilliant in his views of the powers of government and the joint obligations of the ruler and the ruled. He states the inalienable right of the people to resist tyranny and oppression. I believe our Patrick has found the arguments he needs to use when he goes to court. We. Oui. He knows the law and the arguments well, but his problem remains that he has no business to argue against the law, as it has already been decided by the court, decided by his father. His father, indeed. You bring up another piece of this unfolding courtroom drama, my pet. 
Aside from the case itself, there is the personal side of this matter. After failing at everything he's tried, this is perhaps Patrick's last chance to prove himself to his father as a lawyer. Nigel crossed his arms with a frown. This will be a tense, complicated business. Patrick's job is to convince the jury to keep the damages paid to Maury as low as possible, and that is it. So that does not leave much room for him to shine or impress his father. A sliver of a wedge, Liz recalled, thinking about what Patrick had told John he needed to find a different outcome for the case. If Patrick hopes to impress his father and influence his jury, he will have to say some things that will be both uncomfortable in front of his uncle Patrick Henry and unpopular in front of the court. Not just unpopular, my dear, but treasonous, Nigel added as he and Liz shared a look of concern. This will take great courage and a verbal boldness Patrick has never used before. And the boldness he needs will not come from even the most brilliant legal minds, but from the maker. I believe he needs reminders of things to inspire such boldness. The two pennies John had given Patrick were sitting next to his Bible. Liz walked across the desk to flip the pages to Jeremiah 15 and placed her paw on the passage. Do you remember what the maker told Jeremiah when he was afraid to speak? Nigel came over to read the passage and nodded. Ah, yes, the maker ensured Jeremiah that he would triumph over those bullies and be his spokesman, but only if he trusted in him. Bullies. Suddenly an idea came to Liz. C'est ça. Merci, Nigel. She kissed the little mouse on the head and jumped off the desk onto the floor. I have to send our Scottish terrier on an errand. "'You're welcome, my dear, but for what I am not certain,' Nigel replied, scratching his head. Uh, "'Where are you sending Max?' he hoarsely shouted after her. "'To find some calendula officinalis,' she called back over her shoulder. "'Scottish marigolds!' Patrick was dreaming about the day he and Davies walked through his dust-choked tobacco fields. Are you saying that this drought will lead me to a miracle? Davy smiled and shrugged his shoulders. Only the Lord knows what this drought will lead you to, Patrick. I do know it'll teach you things you can't learn in any other way. You will gain wisdom invaluable in ways you don't yet understand. God brought good from the droughts for Joseph and Elijah. So trust in his promise that he will also bring good to you and take care of you in the meantime. Davy started walking away from him in his dream, and Patrick reached out his hand, begging him not to leave. Please, Samuel, tell me what to say. I'm afraid to speak the words I know I must. The dust from the tobacco fields filled his throat, causing him to choke. He struggled to speak. What if I fail? Samuel Davies turned around and looked at Patrick. What if you fail? Fail to speak or fail not to speak, Patrick. You must decide which will keep you from your miracle. The Presbyterian minister turned and walked away from Patrick and soon vanished from sight. Patrick awoke with a start at the sounds of newborn William crying. 
He could hear Sally getting up to take care of the baby. His heart raced, and he had to remember where he was. He sat up and rubbed his eyes. The faint images of his dream left him with a bittersweet feeling of having seen his mentor and friend again. What a dream! I must have fallen asleep late last night, he said to himself, seeing the faintest ribbons of sunrise outside. He picked up the pamphlet he had been reading. No offense, Mr. Bland. He stretched his arms out wide and yawned. He shook his head and looked around his desk. He gave a curious smile to see the two pennies sitting on top of his opened Bible. He leaned over and read the passage they marked from Jeremiah 15. The Lord replied, Stop this foolishness and talk some sense. Only if you return to trusting me will I let you continue as my spokesman. You are to influence them, not let them influence you. They will fight against you like a besieging army against a high city wall, but they will not conquer you, for I am with you to protect and deliver you, says the Lord. Yes, I will certainly deliver you from these wicked men and rescue you from their ruthless hands. Fail to speak or fail not to speak. Patrick furrowed his brow at the difficult decision he needed to make. I know I must trust you to help me speak, Lord, but do I dare call the parsons wicked? Patrick picked up the two pennies, and a grin slowly grew on his face. Perhaps rapacious harpies would sound better. His smile faded, and he felt the blood drain from his face. But not in front of Uncle Patrick. Well, it seems that Mon Henry has his work cut out for him, no? Aye, but I got to say, it sure seems like a lot of fuss over a couple of wee pennies. Au contraire, Max. Uh, listen and learn, as we will find out in today's edition of Nigel's News Nuggets. Greetings. Nigel P. Monaco here, waxing financially in response to today's discussion of the Two-Penny Act. For, indeed, some clarification may be in order. For, let's face it, as Max has pointed out, these days, two pennies are hardly even worth stooping over to pick up. But, going back to the 1700s, those two pennies were worth far more than they are in today's inflationary times. First, those pennies were still part of British currency, and thus derived their value from the British pound. Now, for well over 100 years beyond Patrick Henry's time, the value of the pound and money in general remained quite stable, actually. It wasn't until the 20th century, during World War I, that inflation became an issue. Before then, those two pennies were still worth almost two pennies. However, there was great inflation during both world wars, reducing the value of the pound severely. But curiously, the end of the Second World War did not end inflation. Since that time, we have had very few years without inflation. So now, what would have cost two cents in colonial America would cost over three and a half pounds today. Or, put another way, that pastor in the story who felt he was owed 400 pounds in 1763... In today's economy, that would be nearly 70,000 pounds. I say, roughly two full years of salary. Perhaps now you can see the weight of that tax burden that Patrick Henry was now charged with combating against for the farmers. 
for Nigel's News Nuggets. I'm Nigel P. Monaco in the newsroom. Ah, thanks, Marcy. Aye, Liz, 70,000 pounds be a lot of weight. <laughs> and I shall leave that joke alone as well. But I must say, I am sure Mo Henry was not expecting John Lewis just to dump the whole case into his lap. Aye, the lad sure threw him a curve with that one then. We, oui. and that is what we are going to talk about with Miss Jenny today, when life throws you a curveball. Uh, Lass, I don't think she plays baseball. Not that kind of curveball. Uh, bonjour, Miss Jenny. Hey, Max and Liz. Uh, Miss Jenny, it is no secret that uh, sometimes in our lives we get thrown into situations that completely take us by surprise. And using the baseball slang, uh, it is like being thrown a curveball, no? Hi, Lass. Have you ever felt like that? Like the maker has thrown you a curveball? You know, that is a great question. Um, If God has ever thrown me a curveball on some of the big plans I have for my writing and how did I deal with it and how did I know it was from God? Well, God doesn't like to be put in a box, does he? And we couldn't do that if we wanted to. Our small little hearts and minds have ideas and dreams and hopes that we want to achieve. And God leads us to accomplish those things, of course, when they are from Him. But many times I will submit that our thinking is too small, you know, and we think, oh God, if only I could have this and accomplish this. And God's like, no, 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 that's too low. That's just a stepping stone. I want you to come way up here and get to this. And so that has been my experience. Many times I was shooting too low. I thought it was a great goal. But God said, it's going to take some time. It's not going to turn out the way you expected, but it's going to be so much better. Because guess what? I know the plans I have for you. And they're always going to be great when you're obedient to follow His call to live out your passions. And so I've been working on trying to get the Art 3 and the Fire Cloud into a fully animated feature film for 14 years. And we have come so close. In fact, this time last year, we thought we were just about ready to sew this deal up and start production. And then here came a curveball. And the plans just kind of evaporated within hours. And that has happened multiple times with the movie thing. You know, and at first I would get so upset because I was so excited and I can't wait to see it on the big screen because it's not about any fame or money or anything. I, I could care less about all of that. I just can't wait to see these stories come to life on the big screen so they can be shared and told and enjoyed and excite and inspire as many people as we possibly can. And, you know, $25 million production budget is kind of cheap in God's economy, but it's big in ours, right? Aye, <laughs> I, I never seen that kind of money. That is why we must trust the maker. If it is his will, it can truly happen. So, uh, Miss Jenny, what has God taught you through all of this? God's been teaching me, you know what, You just rest in me. You rest in my timetable. And so when things don't work out, just trust me. And I have come to learn to trust the closed doors even more than the open ones. And in hindsight, some of the people along the way on this 14-year journey have turned out not to be the kind of partners that we would have chosen, but they served a purpose either in inspiring and leading us to meet other people 
and other potential partners. So nothing is ever wasted when you're on this incredible journey with the maker. Oh, that is so reassuring. Merci, Miss Jenny. I still think that'd be a lot of money. Twenty-five million dollars, then. Well, then, Max, look at it this way. With the American dollar's inflation rate scaled back to the 1700s, uh, that would only be uh, uh, less than $16,000. Oh, well, when you put it that way, then, it's it's still still a lot lot of money. money. But with the maker, all things, all things are possible. So let's keep praying for Miss Jenny's animated film of the Ark, the Reed, and the Fire Cloud to become a reality. We let us then trust the Maker to do that which we cannot do by ourselves. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.